Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 89 of Real Blend, a podcast that knows now why you cry. My name is Sean O'Connell. I am the managing director at Cinema Blend. And damn, folks, do we have the best episode in store for you guys. People in the past have come to Real Blend uh, for behind-the-scenes stories from the movie circuit and very cool interviews. And we have all of that in store for you guys in one episode this week, number 89. We're going to be doing, uh, for some episode highlights... The latest and final, we think, trailer for Star Wars, uh, Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. We have stories from some very awesome trips to get into that all three of us have been able to go on. And this week, we have Ed Norton, the director and star of Motherless Brooklyn, as our guest. But before we get to all that amazing content, I have to introduce... My illustrious co-host, starting with Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jake. How are you? I thought you were going to go with Kevin first this week <laughs> since he wasn't here. I, I can never oh, yeah. predict which order you're going to go in. It's true. It's a fun I really, game. I decide that in the moment. It's like um, a little mini blend game every week. <laughs> that only we get to play. Uh, <laughs> the other voice back with us after missing a week uh, it wasn't consecutive weeks, was it, Kevin? No, no, we did it. Right, we, we did it. We did a recording before I left. Oh, right, right, right. That's right. Well, Kevin's back with us. Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hi. Uh, an unbiased opinion based on your intro you just did. I, I would listen to that episode. <laughs> yes, you would. Yes, you would. So uh, like the blend game is basically like Sophie's Choice, where Sean has to choose between the two of us every single week. <laughs> uh, and Gabe's reference- just sitting in the dark. The reference in the uh, intro, obviously, if you don't know, is to T2. Um, and part if of the you reason don't know, why, why are you listening to this podcast? Why? Yeah, really. Exactly. Uh, part of the reason why I started with that is because the boys are heading out to uh, Hollywood, as they say, to do the Terminator Dark Fate junket. If it happens, if it happens. And, oh, uh, if it don't, happens. don't. And they may potentially get a chance to sit See, down. Sean's with, uh, on my side on this. Arnold no, he's not. And Linda no, he's Hamilton, not on your side. If it happens, yes. Okay, so reviews. Um, we always start the episode with reviews that you guys write to us, and there's multiple ways that you can get we them to us. We always start the episode telling you all the movies we haven't seen. <laughs> yes, we do get to that eventually, too. Uh, you can go over to the iTunes page and leave us a review there. Uh, you can also email us, realblend at cinemablend.com. Uh, to your guys' point, I know you guys ask me this every single week, there are more people who are playing the blend game uh, using the email. Uh, that not, not more than social media. Obviously, most people are still playing along on Twitter, uh, but a lot of people are using the email realblend at cinemablend.com, so keep those emails coming. And this one comes from... Alan N. Jax, and I don't know if that means Jacksonville, possibly, and he says, an impressive podcast. Sean, Kevin, and Jake, thank you all. I've been reading Cinema Blend and getting email notifications for years. Somehow I never heard of Real Blend. I stumbled across RB last week, and all I can say is, nice. <laughs> In quotes. Uh, I have been binging Real Blend, and I mean, 
Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Feige, etc. Superlative wow. interviews and insights. I get the impression the interviewees, who I would expect to be self-important and cynical, really enjoy speaking to you guys. And I enjoy hearing you ask the questions I would ask. You are real fans, just like the listeners. Even the interviews with directors who I'm not familiar with are fascinating and make me want to watch some of their movies. I grew up in the Bronx watching the likes of Shallot, Siskel and Ebert, and Reed. I never related to them. They liked hoity-toity flicks while I loved things. Oh, listen to this. They loved hoity-toity flicks while I loved things like T2 and Beverly Hills Cop. Well, Please cool. keep up the outstanding work. I will be listening. That's awesome. Oh, that's done, awesome. That done, I didn't. I will done, say done, though, done, with done, those done, names done, he mentions, done, we wouldn't we wouldn't be where we are today without those those wow. critics. And it, yeah. and it, it is interesting because we're going to get into a a bit on our show today about um, kind of what's going on generationally with filmmakers and certain movies that are hitting with different audiences nowadays that maybe not are, are not being liked by certain older filmmakers. So but to, to, to that review, thank you. Um, but you got to you got to you have to know that those those are the pioneers. Like those are the beginning you know, of but film even criticism. with their films. I still think we figure out a way to sort of approach them in a way that maybe like helps people kind of understand them a little bit better. Like. I don't think we ever condescend to anyone. I think we, I think what you're trying to say, Sean, is that, and I agree with you. I think we come at it from more of a, I mean, at least from my pr- opinion, based on the way we talk and the way we sound, we come at it from like friends talking about movies that just want to hang out, like in the sure. sense that we're not, we're not, we're not writing. Uh, a, a very uh, deeply thought out, like thematic review that's going to have like big words. We're just kind of like talking about movies as if friends are talking. I think that's what he's probably saying. I would ass- I would assume that as well too. Uh, one way that people are able to communicate with us is the weekly poll, a function that we are now doing uh, where every Friday I will put a poll up on the Real Blend account. You guys will vote on it, and it usually triggers a conversation that we will take it from here. We put this one up last Friday because I believe it was right after Paul Dano got cast as the Riddler. And that, you know, when I said that out loud and that sounded really strange, <laughs> like awesome. Casting. I remember that he got cast. Amazing. But like, he, so Zoe Kravitz now is a uh, Catwoman. Paul Dano is going to be playing the Riddler. And of course, you have Robert Pattinson as the Batman. Those are your three choices for Matt Reeves film. Uh, Jake, tell me which one you think won for your favorite recent Batman casting announcement, Pattinson, Dano, or Kravitz? I, are we allowed to vote? Because I vote on our You can vote, sure, poll. of course. I, vote, yeah. I voted for Paul Dano, but I would say I think Pattinson won. Oh. Kevin, do you have a... I mean, I think the Pattinson casting is amazing. I, I, I'm a huge... Like, the Dano casting, I think, is perfect. It's almost right. as if Matt Reeves uh, knew exactly who he needed and wanted. I mean, after, every, after what Paul Dano did on There Will Be Blood, I mean, I think... He's one of the most underrated actors working today. But Pattinson makes me happy because of the comeback. It's And, and again, we're, we're in the World Series right now, and I'm not the biggest sports fan on the planet, but my favorite thing about the World Series right now is watching Ryan Zimmerman succeed. And, like, I mean, I remember when I first started in, uh, in the D.C. area, Zimmerman was, like, the poster boy for the Nationals. And the team never really had this big of a break that it has right now. And last night during the World Series game one, when Zimmerman hit that home run, and, and I'm not a sport, I'm not a big sports guy, but that thing hit me. I had like tears in my eyes because, and kind of going back Jake. to Patton, uh, uh, here's my point though. 
to Pattinson. I know Jake's wrapping me up because we're playing the Astros. But <laughs> my point about Pattinson is Pattinson did the Twilight movies and Pattinson was put into a bubble, in my opinion, where he wasn't taken seriously as a great actor. And I think that without Twilight, I don't think he ever would have gotten Batman. But with Twilight, it came with a certain level of baggage that, hey, you were in those movies. So to see him get good time, crush good time, and then have Reeves cast him as Batman, it, I love stories like that. And I love stories that where someone has a comeback and, and they're, they're going to do great, in my opinion. So does that mean you think that he got the number of votes? I asked you who got the number of votes. That oh, I, I forgot that that's what we were still doing. Oh, Sean, I thought you asked me which of the three castings I thought was the best one. I'm no, sorry. I, I wanted you to guess I, which one got the most. I'm sorry. I, mean, I misunderstood this that. Is going well. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I thought you were... I thought you were asking which of the three castings was the better of the cast. I'm sorry. My apologies. I, well, that's okay. Well, listen, everybody voted Paul Dano, actually. Paul Dano got oh, 36%. Wow. Yeah. So people are really But 36% thrilled. means that that was all, they had to be still pretty close then. Zoe Kravitz got 33 and Pattinson got 32. So pretty much everyone's kind of pleased yeah. with it. I had a great viral video idea that I pitched to our video team and they didn't do it. I wanted them to take the damn milkshake scene from There Will Be Blood and put a Batman mask on him and then put a Riddler mask on Paul Dano. And I just think that that would have gone viral. <laughs> that but, would be uh, amazing. Wouldn't that be great? But uh, cool. my video team didn't want to do it. They figured uh, it didn't have uh, enough value for their time. That's what I'm dealing with here. So anyway, keep an eye on Real Blend's Twitter account every Friday. Uh, we'll put up a new one soon. Uh, and we'll, I'll put, we're recording on, what day is today? Wednesday? And then uh, you guys will be able to vote in it. And then we'll be able to trigger a new discussion. So for regular listeners, um, we're going to do something a little bit different this week uh, because we're so excited about the fact that we got time with Ed Norton. Uh, we want to throw to that interview sooner than we normally would. Usually the interviews go a little bit later in the show, uh, usually right before the blend game. Um, but for Motherless Brooklyn, Warner Brothers came around to us and offered uh, Ed Norton. Now he's the star of that film and he's also directing, it's only his second film uh, directing, and he went on a regional tour in addition to doing some press for it, uh, and he came through Washington, D.C., so Kevin got a chance to sit down with him. Um, Kevin, how did that go? What was that like? Well, it's cool. I, I think our, our our viewers and listeners actually love hearing the behind the scenes of how things come about. Yeah. I, I wanted Jake to talk real quick uh, briefly before I tell about how, how I did the interview you, Jake was supposed to do it initially, actually, in New York, but Jake's schedule didn't align with it because just tell people real fast because it's kind of cool. People don't realize how how he juggled these. The amount of and travel. Like, <laughs> yeah, and this particular interview uh, took place in, in D.C., and I'll get to that, but Jake, you were originally going to do this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we do a lot of, obviously, traveling behind the scenes, and, and you know, a lot of times they're in different cities, and this just happened to be a case where uh, I was interview, I was going, set to interview Edward Norton, and I did for TV a couple of days after Kevin did, in New York, had to immediately hop on a flight and go from New York to L.A. to uh, see Jojo Rabbit that night and then right. interview the cast of Jojo Rabbit. So it was just one of those situations where I couldn't even stick around to talk to Ed Norton at lunch, which is normally where we do these things, or sometimes even after the junket, because the second I was done with him uh, with TV, uh, I had to hop and go do. I mean, you know, it's, it's behind the scenes madness, but, uh, you know, it makes I for uh, makes for good stories. I like those stories and check out Jake's YouTube interviews with Jojo Rabbit. They're really great. Um, but yeah, yeah Edward Norton was uh, incredible uh, to be able to talk career with him was really wild. And I, I think one of the things about this podcast that I've always said that I love is the longer form that we have. We have four minutes in a TV room and this is a 30 minute 
very casual sit-down interview. We cover everything you'll hear from Primal Fear to American History X to Fight Club to Motherless Brooklyn. Um, and yeah, it was truly an honor to sit across from someone that I had been watching for the past, what, 20-something years and just have someone actually openly want to talk about their movies in detail. Yeah. Um, so well, that's I'm the just, thing. Like, we got yeah. him as a director, but you forget how many films he's been in, you know, both as a leading man, as a contributing, you know, as a supporting actor, too. He's worked with so many amazing directors, and he gets into a lot of that, too. Let's throw it to it uh, so you guys don't have to wait any longer. This is Ed Norton discussing uh, the finer points of his career, as well as his new film, Motherless Brooklyn. Ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right. Well, first of all, um, Mr. Norton, thank you for joining the Real Blend podcast. This is an absolute honor to have you. Um, Motherless Brooklyn opens up on November 1st. Uh, as a director, um, you're, you directed Keeping the Faith. You direct this film. What are things you learned about yourself as an actor by directing yourself? Like, what's something that you notice? like, okay, I do this as an actor because now I'm directing myself and I see these <laughs> moments? Um, I, I would say it sort of goes the other way, I think. It, it's more that because you know yourself as an actor, you you know you know what to do as a director. If that makes any sense, sure. I, um, I guess the, I think the better way to put it almost is that is that when you mash the two up, certain things that you do as an actor to protect or hold on to your own sense of your performance, you can let go of that because it's you who's going to edit the performance, right? So, so oh, wow. yeah, I, th- I think that. that, I think that no matter what your level of trust is with a director, there's a certain component of every actor that maybe, maybe, um, you know, doesn't go too crazy on experiment because like, like it's almost like you don't, it's almost like you're a writer and you don't want people to see your early draft, right? And 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 in some ways for me, especially with this role, this character has Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder and so his 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 physical tics and his outbursts are are a thing that I needed to calibrate, right? But knowing that knowing that I'm really only working with myself as a director and an editor, I could very it it let me be unselfconscious as an actor in the sense that I could say, well, I'm going to try this on the subtler end. I'm going to try a completely over the top version. I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to give myself a lot of raw material to work with mm. without any self-consciousness about which one's right. And, and that actually helped me work faster in some ways, to be honest. Mm. Um, so that, you know, it's interesting because you, you, you talk <laughs> to a lot of uh, actors who, uh, who will do their, acting on a set and then the final product will come out and the edit could completely change the performance that they did on the set that day or the movie. Um, I'm curious about, you mentioned the Tourette's element to me. That's fascinating to me because there's got to be a balance there, right? Of not doing it too much, but doing it in a, in a right amount. And I feel like you capture it perfectly. Uh, I'm just curious, is, the, is there a balance? Is there a push and pull of like, am I doing it too many times? Do I need to pull it back a little bit? Because I, I yeah. feel like you found a perfect balance. Well, the, the thing about Tourette's syndrome is that there is no, there, there actually is no perfect Yeah. because, um, some people, it's a very, it's a very, it's a remarkable condition that in the sense that it expresses itself in people in highly individualistic ways. In other words, like there are people who 
There are people who blink compulsively and that's the extent of it. There are people who, who have a physical twitch that you might, probably people all around them think that they just sort of compulsively stretch their neck or stretch their jaw. Hmm. And um, I, I have a friend who's a litigator in New York who I don't think people know has Tourette syndrome, but the thing I'm doing in the movie of kind of the, the neck stretching and the jaw stretching, he does that all the time. Okay. But that's the extent of it. Many people who have Tourette syndrome don't have what's called echolalia, which is the vocal component of it. Other people do, and sometimes they're just fixated on one word. Sometimes sometimes the, the, the kind of cliche is the most extreme version is the idea that people with Tourette syndrome scream obscenities right. or yell inappropriate things, which is a true manifestation for some people, but definitely not for all. Um, and so um, there was an NBA player, Chris Jackson, who who – in the documentary, one of the documentaries about people with the condition, he talks about the compulsion he has to touch people on the shoulder, which I loved. And I put that yeah. um, in the film. I from love that. It was almost like a, it was like an emotional thing. Yeah. People, yeah. he feels slightly, you know, yeah. a connection forming. It and grounds it. Yeah. It, yeah. And, um, and I think that uh, the point being one of the wonderful things, people I talked to uh, who I met someone who has a fairly, I don't want to say extreme, but a fairly strong blend of manifestations of Tourette's um, who Robin Williams was friends with. And I met mm. when we were doing the film death, death to Smoochie. And, um, and it was, it was amazing. It was remarkable talking to him about exactly what we deal with in the film, which is the fact that there's, there's, there's aspects of it that were an enormous struggle for him. He was a sculptor. Um, he talked about how he couldn't, he couldn't, go to movies, which he loves, oh, couldn't wow. go to the movie theater because he ca- he had a very vocal form of, uh, of threats. And this was isolating for him. It was the sadness of not being able to being denied some of the fun of group experiences and stuff like that. But also the way that it transposed itself through him into his work. Um, and, it, you know, and it, it's, it's fascinating that I was fascinated by that idea of the duality of things that have weird gifts within them, even as they're difficult. And, um, I think that, I think that the, to me, the, the biggest challenge of the idea of character of character who has a disability is actually not like, um, it's, it's not the idea that you're going to insult the, 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 the disability in some reductive way, it's, it's actually the opposite. It's a a lot of people, I think what they like, what they don't like is seeing like the fact that someone has a disability, turning them into a saint. You know what I mean? I think it's like what I, what I've had people come up to me about this and say is what they like is how fully human he is. In other words, he has this ability. He's not defined by his Tourette's. He's he's defined by, by some other people, but also it's, it's, you don't want to take away from him also that, He's a little bit passive. He's not heroic. He's kind of, as he says later, he's he's so enmeshed in his own problems. He's never really bothered to care about other people that much. And in the film, he he grows up. He he evolves. He ends up inspired by this woman who is herself an activist into realizing, I've got my daily struggles, but I've got to get off the fence and actually be a part of these bigger these, these bigger issues, you know, and I, and, and to me, that's, 
that's the way you fully humanize someone. I, I mean, that, that's honestly, that's like you think about a, a performance like Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot, right? It's not great because it's, he just does the struggle so beautifully. It's great because he's fully human. He's a real son of a bitch sometimes. You know, he's a real, he's really nasty to people sometimes. He, he doesn't take away from him his total complexity as a person. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I completely agree with you on that sense in the sense of like, there is like, there's faults and there's, and that we, everyone has faults in right. their lives. Um, one thing I find interesting is your character chews gum to try and kind of help him not shout as much or, or have the, uh, the moments where he has the Tourette's. Um, as an actor, uh, not in the same vein as Tourette's, but like, do you have like a nervous tick or anything that you ha- have before you perform in a, a gum chewing thing that you do to kind of get yourself kind of mm. grounded before you perform? It's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not particularly ritualized because I find like different, different pieces of work have such different demands on them. The style is so different. The Nate, the type of the character is so different. And I think like sometimes, um, I, I relate more. Robert De Niro told me one time that, that he, he, he has, he always has some sort of a secret talisman, you know, he always has something like in his pocket or so that, the, that, that, that is an anchor for him into what the character's sort of secret life is that he never tells anybody about his thing. And, and I, I, I think things like that, I relate to more like, um, I've had characters that I've had characters that to me, the point of connection was just the sho- the boots, the shoes, because they change your posture so much. Like which just, ones? Well, I mean, you know, like Worm and Rounders to me, like was very activated by the clothing, and and um, um, that was to me like it's like a skin. You you put it on and and you're in it. Uh, things, other things are. It's a vo- it's a vocal component or something like that, and I think I think that, that everything's different. There's different access points. <clears throat> I remember, I remember someone told me that Jack Lemon, who no one would call Jack Lemon a method actor, um, but I think he was he was kind of a genius. He, but he, someone told me Jack Lemon would be sitting, chatting with someone you know, on the set, blah, 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 blah. And they would say like, you know, we're ready, Mr. Lemon. And that he would all, he had this ritual. He would clap his hands and and say magic time and then, and then go on. And that he never went into a take without, you know, like almost like he stopped the moment he was in, went magic time. And that That's was like cool. his like meditation and his trigger to get refocused. But I, I, don't, I don't have that one. Yeah. I don't have that one. You know, one thing I find interesting is uh, you, you obviously narrated Fight Club, you narrate here. And as narr- narration is interesting to me because it's such a personal thing. It's you're not we're not seeing your face. We're see, we're hearing your voice. You have to inflect a certain way. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about like maybe what you did with Fight Club narration wise and kind of how that helped shape how you narrated here and the sense of like emotionally delivering narration to an audience without your face um kind of I guess the idea of like how Fight Club maybe prepared you uh for narration in this specifically I know you've done narration before um, but <clears throat> narration you call it narration or voiceover voiceover yeah, yeah. I because I, I guess he was considered the narrator in Fight Club yeah Fight. Yeah. yeah that's true Fight Club um my recollection of of that the that was like, it was like a whole second film shoot. It was like Fincher is so exacting 
in the in the best ways. But I I think we were. I think we did that narration hundreds of times. Like, um, sounds like a Fincher thing. <laughs> no, but like th- this one one type of mic five inches from you, another type of mic a foot from you. You know, wh- oh, change it. Put that mic four feet away and put that mic closer, but slightly to the right. I mean, like he was <clears throat> he was trying, and we were trying technically for the longest time to to just get a sound that sounds like a voice inside a head, you know? Yeah. And so it almost became like, like med, I, it, when you repeat something so much, it can get to where you're like, it's like an incantation. You're not even listening to what it's about anymore. And, um, like the, I am Jack's lines. Like those are, you probably just said those a thousand times. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and there's that thing with that film, there was such a tension, between, you know, the, the thing was like, how surreal is it? How real is it? How much are you, how much are you trying to create a hyper real sensation? It was so stylistically um, specific that it was like finding the pitch mattered, you know. Uh, but it did, <clears throat> if I took anything from that, it was simply that like, you, it's not good enough to hang a mic in front of a person and, and do it. It's not going to, there's a lot, a lot of the way a thing plays is, is a function of how you mic it, where you, how you mix it, where you put it in the center channel versus in the left, right, you know, and you, you, you're trying to create an effect. The different, uh, and, and of course, differently here? we did, I did record it differently here. I wanted a little bit more of a, um, everything about the film we wanted to have a kind of a subliminal sense of of like the analog quality the fi- uh, not a fake patina or a fake like crackle of the vinyl in some sense but but we did want i didn't want you know we didn't shoot the film using speed prime lenses we shot it using old like you know old glass on modern bodies and we didn't record the the narration in sort of hyper real, you know, like sounding like you got a set of Bose headsets on. We, we wanted it to have a certain kind of a flat, um, inside the head and intimacy, but just not with a quality of like modern high fidelity. Yeah. It's an amazing, I mean, I love the narration. Um, one of the things I find interesting is the, uh, the cinematography is incredible. Dick Pope is amazing way of the gun. I know you guys worked on illusionist together, which is amazing. Um, there's, there's a shot in the movie with a puddle, uh, yeah, I love that shot so much. And just, you guys saw that. Yeah. yeah, the way the shots played out in this film was gorgeous. And then Daniel's <clears> score. I mean, it's a leading character. But the Thom York story, I, I, know, I know you've talked about this a little bit, where you got the song, you rewrote elements of the script uh, or went back into the script and kind of added lines from um, the title of the song. Um, so I was curious in your career over the performances you've done um, in a different situation, has a song ever affected the way you've approached a character after you heard it. Like, I know this is a different because you wrote the song for your movie, but was there a character you were playing and you heard a song and went, man, I should, maybe I should go in a different direction here. Mm. It, it could be a song. I, I don't know if movie. it changed it. I had, we, um, when we did this film, The Painted Veil, we were using like this great composer, Eric Satie, um, that just sort of caught for all of us the, 
the, the, the sort of weird, I don't know, the me- melancholy lyricism, but also a little bit dissonant, little, little dark. That was helpful. Um, when we were doing American history X, like the, the, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are white power bands and from England and fewer in the States, but that have a certain kind of a thrash punk mm. vibe, but I didn't want to listen to that. I didn't actually personally want to listen to that stuff, but there were some bands that I loved growing up in the DC Baltimore oh, area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like there was kind of more the straight edge version of all of that straight edge came from here. Like, you know, there was minor threat and um, Fugazi and stuff. And I had certain, I had, I had Fugazi tracks and minor threat tracks that I had really liked in that era. Um, there was a, there was a really, we're, we're so past this era, but when I was growing up around here, there was the station WHFS. Oh yeah. It was like, one. Yeah. It was the great alt rock. It was the, it was like the place you Did could you go to HF festivals. Like remember those big cosmic yeah. RFK stadium. Well, well it's funny. Spike, Spike Jones and I talked about it cause you know, he grew up near Rockville, yeah. Silver Spring and, um, HFS like was, you know, for, we're older, a lot older than you guys, but it was like the clash and all the Brit pop stuff. And, um, you know, the, then later, like the Pixies and REM and stuff like that, that was where you could hear all those bands. But, but, you know, probably in that era, Fugazi and Minor Threat were like the ones that kind of to us seemed like, wow, this is like, you know, this has like a righteousness to it. Right. And I, I think it was that like, righteousness that I, that was a good trigger for me on, on that film. Um, this one, you know, Tom. I always call him Thom. Sorry. Yeah. Because it's spelled T-H-O-M. No, yeah. no, no. Tom. You know, yeah. yeah. Sorry. He, he would probably he, hate me for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. he, he would leave the <laughs> Sorry, room. Sorry, Tom. Um, <laughs> uh, Tom gave me the song early enough in the process that it, illuminated certain things to me that I realized it like revealed things that are embedded in the script, but that I didn't feel I was underlining enough. And it made me want to underline. It made me want to underline certain ideas more. Yeah. Um, and that's wonderful when, when, cause in a way he wrote the song inspired by the script, but the, then the song inspired me to underline more or, or enhance certain things became more clear to me. Um, and that's just great. That's like just, uh, I, those kind of dialogues, dialogues are, uh, it's like, I think Francis Coppola said like the best thing about making movies is they're collaborative. And the worst thing about making movies is they're collaborative, (laughs) but I don't actually, the second part is, uh, I think a little bit tongue in cheek because the, the, the way that super talented people, if, as you assemble them, the way that 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 one plus one starts to equal four is a very real thing. Like you, the whole thing is madness. Like you, you, you say on you, you say, I want to make a, uh, I want to make a big scale epic film of New York in the fifties, and we're going to shoot it in modern New York, and we're going to do big car chases through the city. Um, with real cars and we're going to do this and that and that. And like, you know, 99% of people like head for the door. Cause they're just like, that sounds bloody and impossible and awful. But the people who kind of assemble around it and go, we, I know how to do that. Those become like your, 
that that that's like they make you look like you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? And I think we talked about Dick Pope. He's Ugh. Dick, but Dick, it's Dick has shot for for my money. Like the reason he's one of the all time greats is not just because everything looks great, and in particular to me, the period films he did with Mike Lee, Vera Drake, um, Topsy Turvy. Yeah. Uh, the one he was nominated for just the same year as Birdman, um, Mr. Turner, the one about the the British painter, Mr. Turner. Uh, I, I knew that working with Mike Lee, he, he didn't have prep time and he didn't have long schedules. And I was looking at these films going, I don't understand how a person. And then when I did the illusionist with him, which we shot in a, on a very short schedule, and I was looking at it and going, how is he, how does he make this look this good? Um, when working this fast and, um, and I knew I needed, I needed that very precisely because he doesn't add grain. He doesn't do digital tricks. He doesn't add grain. He doesn't put a bullshit sort of patina. Um, you know, he doesn't like say, let's put, let's make the whole thing sepia and that will make you feel like you're in the fifties, you know, or he, he just, there's a, uh, the kind of glass he uses and the way he lights, um, it's just, just marvelous. And, uh, Andy can work fast. So he was like my MVP. What blew me away was in the beginning. Uh, and when people see the movie, it's truly incredible how he, the blurring out of the faces as we're in the room mm. with Willis and, and for people who, when they see it, I also want to recommend downloading Tom York's song for the film. Cause it's absolutely incredible. Uh, it's part of the film. It's, it's, it's out there. I think it's in the trailer. Daily as well. battles. Daily yeah, battles. It's Daily phenomenal battles. song. Um, so one thing I love about your films over the years as an actor is that a lot of them have great reveals. Um, like throughout the film, you're kind of you, you may be playing a different two different people, but the, the reveal throughout that is amazing to me. And obviously, the one of the best ever is Primal Fear. Um, so I was curious, like going back in that moment as you do that clap, what you remember about Are you doing Primal Fear? Yeah, oh. what you remember about that scene specifically, and then what for you personally as Edward Norton is the biggest jaw dropping reveal you've seen in a film hmm. um something that just I mean, blew I, your mind i don't I, I it's very hard to recollect things like you know moments you shot a thing the one of the things that comes to my mind is just simply remember i remember that i was very very impressed by richard gear um specifically because there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of chatter and pressure around that production about the ending hmm. and about the idea that, that it should be reshot or we should do it differently, that he should win, that it was important that he, that he should, you know, I mean, literally the ideas were as bad as he should punch out the kid. He, <laughs> he should, you should realize that he's going to nail him. You should, he should have a recorder on him and be busting him. He, all these things. And, it, and all it was, was this like, this sort of like terror of the, you know, Richard got to win. and Richard was the one who really stood firm almost to the point of refusing to do anything else. He was like, did anybody see what we just did here? Like it was, you know, he was kind of pointing at me and he was like, this is how you use me to best effect because I'm, I'm slick. I'm the guy that thinks he goes, it's a body blow. The last shot of the movie is me standing with my shoulders, sanging punched in the face and that's it. And I was like, 
that is really that is really cool. Like mm. he, this is not like I need to come out on top. I need to win. My, you know, it was like we made the movie work. And the best thing in the world is I just got played. You know what I mean? And I <laughs> and I remember thinking like this, I, the clap. No, man. I really. But I admired that. I think Richard Richard was very. He was very. Um, I was doing the flashy part of it, but honestly, I think he 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 had a very, very strong instinct that, that, that was, um, that, that was the way to, that the movie should end. You know what I mean? I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire stuff. I got five more minutes left. Um, I like little things about how characters, uh, become characters. Um, little things about your character in this movie, the way he orders a drink. I'll have an early one whiskey neat. Um, and it's such an interesting little thing that happens a couple times mm-hmm. throughout the film. A drink defines a character. The way a person orders a drink, the way a person, um, the way he does it in the early one. What what does it say about like those little things are so important? Um, and like, how do you come up with what he drinks? I mean, I'm sure it was was it in the book um, what he no, drinks. The whiskey no, no. So how do you come well the up book with that? the book takes place in the 90s. We, yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. We reset it in the 50s. Um, that's a funny question. I, I was curious. I I think there's no there's truth in that. I I think that. Um, the way people talk about a thing conveys their experience with right. it, you know? So if someone says things in an offhand way, sometimes, especially if they say it in ways that are unfamiliar to us, what I think it does for the audiences is it signals two things. It's like, I, sometimes like, I may not know what he's talking about, but that's cool because I want to understand this world and what I know is he knows what he's talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, like I'll use a really weird example, but I really love the um, Peter Weir's film uh, Master in Command or the oh, one yeah. with Russell Crowe and things. Yeah. The first 20 minutes of that movie, you they're saying, they're almost like they're speaking in another language. They're speaking this language of men on the seas. And, and you don't know what any of the things they're talking about are in reference to. And that's why it's great because you're like, oh, my God, I am, I am on a ship in this – in 1812 or whatever. Yeah. And this is what was said. And this – and I don't know what it means, but this is amazing. Well, you know what I mean? You, you know, immersion. You and yeah. Exactly. And I, I think that um, <clears throat> to your – first of all, I believe that like – I don't believe audiences want to understand what's going on. That's not why people go to movies. They go to movies waiting for that moment when the total aesthetic of it, the music, the sound, the way people are speaking, whatever's going on, flips a switch in the head and goes, I am in a place where someone knows where they are taking me and I am digging being here. Mm. And wherever this goes, I'm going. You know what I mean? That's... Like, I don't think today one person who says they love L.A. Confidential could tell you what the plot of the film is. Mm. That's not what the experience of L.A. Confidential or yeah. Chinatown or any of the movies we love that this is in the maybe in the in the tradition of what happens is you go, whoa, wait a second. This is not tongue in cheek. This is not like people playing dress up. This I am there. This feels like Hollywood in the 50s. And Russell Crowe is a badass. And Guy Pierce is feels like a real these these guys are playing this straight and it's great and I am so in you know and the music's great and you're just you're just you just go on the drift you know you go on the ride um because the magic is happening you've been transported and I think that um you know you were talking about the beginning of the film when Dick and I talked about 
there's this mysterious meeting happening. But Lionel's on the phone. He's hearing it. He only knows what one person looks like. He knows what Bruce Willis looks like. So so Bruce Willis is sharp. But the other people, he doesn't know what they look like. And he's projecting himself into that room. So it's your perspective. Yeah, so everyone else is faceless and out of focus. The longer they talk, the more in focus they get. And I think, um, you know, those kinds of things... And if an audience is going, wow, what is being said here? I don't know what's going on. They sh- Bruce Willis sure sounds like he knows what, what is going on. And I feel what I feel is he just said something that made the room go very quiet. And like Lionel, we're going, something very dangerous just took place, but I don't know what it is. That's what you want. You want like, you know, you want to put the audience all the way in the dark. And so that the rest of the movie is about trying to get out of the dark. You know what I mean? And that's... That's sort of like how do you how do you do that in an interesting way? Even you know? just the or this, just the ordering <laughs> of the whiskey neat was cool. Daniel Pemberton, Pemberton's score is brilliant. Uh, I think he is everything he done. Steve Jobs, he's just a genius composer. Uh, you have this song by Tom York that becomes a centerpiece of the film as well. How much does the song that Tom wrote influence how Daniel's score is written so that it all tonally matches? Um, it's a good question. There's actually three pieces. There's, there's Daniel. There's Daniel's score. There's Tom's song. But then there's also this jazz club in the film where f- real music's being played, and you have like Wynton Marsalis and his guys cu- curating with me what would have been played, and you know, and then actually playing it. Um, and you need those things to kind of all cohere, right? So, so in a way, Tom's given me the ballad I wanted feeling like it's plucked from the past, timeless in a way. Winton's doing the stuff that's really from that era. And Daniel, who is, I don't use the word lightly, he he is kind of a musical prodigy. Genius. Yeah, he's really, really quite brilliant. And he, I agree, he had done very interesting stuff. But to me, I, I said, look, I want a big, you know, a big, like classical, jazz, thematic, melodic thing. But then, by the way, I also want it to have all the fracture and dissonance and weirdness of, of Kid A, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, a Radiohead record. And, and, he, and he, he's really the guy who pulled it all together and mashed up all those influences in a wonderful way. That's awesome. I could talk yep. to you all day. Thank you for Thanks, nerding pleasure. out me, man. I appreciate it. Um, thank you for the time. Obviously, we want to thank... Warner Brothers uh, for hooking us up with Ed Norton. We want to let everybody know that Motherless Brooklyn is going to be in theaters on November 1st. Um, I think I'm the only one of the three who hasn't seen it yet. You guys have each seen it because you both did interviews for it. Um, But I'm looking forward to checking it out. Uh, I like, I tend to gravitate towards those film noirs. And I know that it's a lot of, I go for LA detective stories a lot. This is very much a New York set story, um, but still looks pretty intriguing. So I'm excited to see how it plays out. Um, News. We're going to jump over to news because earlier this week, we had a new and I, like I said, I think final trailer for Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And you think it's final? They say final and then like an international trailer comes out and then. I mean, yeah, I guess I do. I I mean, we're two months away from it, right? Like what other major event is going to happen? I think I think an international trailer is going to drop and then there's going to be new footage there. By no means do I think is this the last new look at stuff we're going to get. Interesting. Well, it doesn't matter because my point about this trailer is that it doesn't show us anything. Um, I'm not that excited 
for episode nine based on the marketing. Um, that's what I want to say. I, I, I'm excited for the concept of episode nine. I think it's going to be the culmination to this trilogy that we've been waiting for. Um, I, if they keep marketing it as the end of the saga and I don't, I think that's too much for any film to live up to. Like that's a really daunting thing for JJ to take on. Uh, but based on everything that we've seen from the marketing, like the first force awakens trailer, almost all of the force awakens trailers, um, even the last Jedi trailers, I thought at least got me excited for what the movie specifically is. Nothing shown in the rise of Skywalker ones yet have picked my interest for this particular experience. And, and if it's, if it's just them trying to hold back details, cool, but, um, it, it's not working yet for me. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because I feel like all of the trailers for Endgame earlier this year brought with it that weight of the end of an era. Like every single one of those trailers, I kind of went in, even though I ended up not being crazy about that movie, I went into that movie thinking like, this is the, this is a pinnacle movie moment for my life. Like this is, and I feel like they're trying to replicate that and it's not working. Well, I think I have a reason. Okay. Endgame was at least arriving at the end of a series of stories that were strategically told to lead up to this. Episode nine has to play catch up and be the end for a bunch of movies that I don't think, yeah, that I don't think it was, you know, conceived (laughs) as when we get to nine, it's going to wrap up everything. Um, They're like reverse engineering that. And I'm not sure how it, it may work. It may be great. But um, what's what's interesting about that is I was on the air yesterday uh, talking about the Rise of Skywalker trailer and uh, all of my anchors essentially were like, which is this one within the the main storyline? That's not good that people are asking that question. And that's what I'm saying. And and, and, and that to me is fascinating because like you just said about Endgame, like it it was specific. I mean, even the name obviously was something that was that was geared towards that. But there I think Star Wars is so oversaturated now unfortunately to a point where people don't know if the version of the story we're watching is a one-off spin-off is it right. uh, is it a prequel sequel and i think um it's hard to me to to actually fathom the idea of this being the ninth and final film of the skywalker saga and because it's been so many years and there was that three trilogy element that happened uh with episode <laughs> one two and three in between people don't I mean, listen, we get it. We're, we're all like massive fans of these movies, but I think it's hard to pe- for people to understand that this is the ninth and final film of a thing that started in 1977 that actually happened to be episode four. I mean, it's very confusing. It really but also, is. It doesn't feel like, like it's ending the a trilogy of trilogy. It feels like it's Same. ending one trilogy. This trilogy. But it Thank doesn't you. feel like the end of a trilogy because a majority of the characters. I now, I do think that JJ is going to bring with it a lot of fan service. I wouldn't be surprised if there were an end game style battle, in which case we got a lot of space Jedi ghosts of past Jedis from I'm over sure. the course of nine, nine movies. I wouldn't be surprised. Luke if we will get Qui-Gon an epic Jin. moment. Well, Luke, and I, honestly, I wouldn't even be surprised if they brought back, um, you and McGregor, which would be a great to, uh, uh, to see you and McGregor back as before he goes to the series. Uh, I guess, yeah. no, I guess it would have to be Alec Guinness. Cause it's, it's, your last yeah. image when you're good. So I wouldn't be surprised oh, if yeah. we got a digital Alec Guinness. I wouldn't be surprised if Liam Neeson came back. Um, I'll tell you right now, I would pay good money for JJ to reset that scene with Ray 
on, on the cliff and have that scene go down the way we all wanted it to go down. My point is, though, like episode eight undid so many things about episode seven that I loved that I'm the thing that makes me curious about nine is how JJ is going to rectify that. Like, how is he okay. going? Is is he going to fix it? Is he going to just go along with how Ryan? Because, uh, I mean, to, for me, and, and this is something we discussed in the show before that I find very frustrating is that these three movies should have been mapped out before Seven was even started. You right. know what I mean? There should have been a definitive way that Seven, Eight, and Nine were going to go down. And the fact that Eight took Seven off the track it was on bothers me. And, I, and JJ being attached to Nine is the only reason I'm actually excited about Nine. Um, Trailer-wise, though, I, I disagree with... You liked with, it. You liked the trailer. I love the trailer. Now... I agree with your points. It did not have an end game feeling. It did not have a, this is the end of nine films. I did not feel that whatsoever. Um, what I loved about the trailer to me were the the emotional moments, but the way they remixed John Williams' score. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing hit me so hard. I mean, it was funny, I, our, our buddy Josh, uh, who does what we do? Uh, he mentioned that he was watching it on a plane on on without Wi-Fi, and it was every three seconds it was buffering, and he <laughs> said it still it still made him cry. <laughs> and I'm like, honestly, when I was sitting in my bed watching that trailer, it was the music that made that freaked me out. Like, yeah. and, and there's something. But Sean made a good point that actually, now that I watch the trailer again, I think about the trailer is the same as like every other trailer for Star Wars. The voices in the background, the you know, to me, the Rise of Skywalker trailer we saw at Celebration was better than this one. But it's still, I still, I still loved it. It's just a little disappointing how, and you guys know, I don't have to really say that I'm a Star Wars fan. The the dip you in are. excitement, I am. <laughs> I remember like watching the episode and I get episode seven was sort of a movie we never thought was going to happen, but my emotions watching the episode seven trailer versus, Oh yeah. Watching. Cause oh. I was watching Dr. Sleep when nine, nine. the episode nine trailer dropped. And then I went and was doing some stuff, doing like something after the screening and kind of had this moment where I paused and went, Oh crap guys, the star Wars trailer dropped. And I walked yeah. outside like five years ago, that never would have been the case. I would have ran right. out of that theater and yeah. watched it immediately. But the fact that I had to almost remind myself, mm. oh, guys, there's a new Star Wars trailer. I mean, look, dude, I, I, it's I watched the Force Awakens trailer now and get more excited. Me too. Uh, I agree. Than I was 100%. watching the episode not. I agree. Jake, to, to Jake's point, I know we got to move on, but to Jake's point, this is what's fascinating about that trailer is that nothing in. All right. Here's where we are right now. We're at episode nine. Before seven came out, we still had the idea of Luke Skywalker. Han Solo and Princess Leia, or, or you know, how, the idea of those characters being in another Star Wars movie. Going into nine, at the end of eight, I had, at the end of eight, I had no desire in my mind to think about this story continuing. Now, with Carrie Fisher's passing, clearly I'm very happy that J.J. is going to utilize scenes that he shot in seven that he did not use. But with Luke technically, quote-unquote, being dead and Han Solo being dead... Right. It doesn't feel like we're bringing an end to something that started in 1977. That's, that's no, the issue. It'd be like if you did Endgame without Captain America Iron and Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we just got to finish this story up, but those two main guys are not going to be part of this. Right. Story. I'm sorry. Isn't that a little weird, though? Like, we're finishing a story without the three main characters? Yeah, it is. All right. Yeah. We got to move on. This was a story that came up last week, and we didn't touch on it because, or we might have briefly, but we kind of thought it would be old news but then it didn't really go away because um, 
a few more filmmakers uh, came around to weigh in on it. And then today, Bob Iger decided he was going to chime in also. And the the debate is whether or not uh, Marvel movies are quote unquote um, cinema. And I think, Jake, did we talk about it? Did we just talk briefly about the fact that Scorsese well, I mean, said that? Or? T- yeah, I don't, I mean, at the time, I don't think Coppola had really weighed in. Not yet, um, no. So it's yeah. really, exp- you know, it's, uh, I was saying before we started rolling on the show today, I, I was so excited for the, the Joker conversation at fandom to, to die down. Uh, and then this seems to have replaced it. And now I'm ready for this conversation. Like, I'm like, I'm just so <laughs> over everyone just being mad at people. Like, and at the beginning of the year, if you told me there would be a point in the year where people were attacking whether or not Martin Scorsese knows anything about movies, I would just like want to just claw my eyes out. Right. Well, so it, like they didn't. The thing about it was Francis Ford Coppola, you know, sort of weighs in. And again, these guys get asked. Of course, they're going to answer and they should be able to answer. You know, like I, I definitely they've earned the right to their opinions. But after Scorsese and essentially the guy who framed the question at Scorsese in the first place was saying that he was he was asking it from a context of de-aging, you know, and the fact that the Marvel movies have used it on Sam on Sam Jackson. So I think he was asking him, like, did you take a look at what they've done as you were also doing de-aging for the Irishman? So it was in a context. It wasn't even framed in a like, hey, do you want to attack Marvel? Like kind of just. Right. That's what bothers me, by the way. I didn't know that. I saw the guy who did that interview tweet out about like, hey, by the way, everyone's talking about this like 15 second snippet from this massive interview I did for this. We talked about everything in his career from all these amazing filmmaking things. And that that in what you just said, Sean, that that bothers me like that, that that's the story that that became the whole that's thing. That's how it got was, taken. Yeah, completely out of context. It's almost as if the story was framed to me based on every article that I saw and everything I saw was Martin Scorsese was asked if he likes Marvel movies and he hates them. That's not that's not what happened. No, it's a it's a minor quote that he said in the middle of a context of a de-aging question, which which was actually a great question to ask him. Yeah, of course. But now Francis Ford Coppola, he was asked if he likes Marvel movies and he called them despicable, quote unquote, despicable. Now. So much of this just feels like, you know, the older generation lamenting what's dominating the cinemas of this day. And I guarantee you, when those guys were coming up in the 70s, especially Lucas more so than what Scorsese and Coppola were doing in the 70s, I know old old filmmakers from the 50s and 60s probably hated Star Wars, you know, and probably viewed it as... They probably even hated Jaws. You know, they probably looked at it as like cheap summer blockbuster popcorn stuff. And so I don't think you're ever going to br- really be able to sort of stop that. But the thing that so now Bob Iger, the head of Disney, is weighing in and, and he says today, just today as while we're recording, uh, they want to bitch about movies. It's certainly their right. And I'm looking for the back half of that quote because he com- he compares it to he says, do, do you think that Ryan Coogler, what Ryan Coogler and um, Black Panther are doing is that much different than what uh, Scorsese... I have the quote. You have the quote? Read, read the yeah. whole thing in its entirety. So this is via fandom, uh, Get Fandom. So he goes, quote, if they want to bitch about movies, it's certainly their right. Are you telling me that Ryan Coogler, Coogler making Black Panther is less than anything Scorsese or Coppola have ever done? And the Scorsese and Coppola elements were in brackets. So I, don't, I don't know if he yeah. used their, their names exactly, but that's what he was referring to. Gotcha. So, I mean, listen... You're never going to convince those guys if they don't think that that the superhero movies are good. That's fine. I thought, truthfully, James Gunn had one of the best diplomatic yes. reactions to it, where yes. he said, you know, hey, look, 
uh, westerns of a certain era. You know, some were amazing and and some were crap that were just churned out there. And uh, his, J- basically, James Gunn said, my father, back in the day when the sci-fi movies were coming out, I wanted him to go see Star Wars or Star Trek. And he said, oh, I saw it already when it was 2001. There's always going to be this generational divide. But James Gunn said, look, I work in the superhero genre. Some of them are beautiful uh, and some of them are lazy. That's going to be the case yeah. with any kind of film. And uh, it's I just think this conversation, while it's 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 fun to have and it's fun to sort of bring up and get everybody's opinions, um, it's getting out of hand. It's getting out of hand now but, how, how much vitriol is being spilled over this. And Sean brings up that great point about James Gunn's post, which I thought, again, I love the word diplomatic. It was a great way to say it. And to the Star Wars point you said, he said, quote, I remember a great uncle who I whom I was raving about Star Wars, he responded by saying, quote, I saw that when it was called 2001, and boy, it was boring. Yeah. I, 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 I know that you probably said that already on the show with the quotes, but I mean, I, I find that to be an exact understanding as to what is going on here. This is literally a generational thing, and I don't think Scorsese's comments, in my opinion, are... I don't want to say respectful, but I understand more of where Scorsese's coming from. It's the despicable quote that Coppola used that bothered me. That, 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 is a, that is an inherently very negative way to put down people who work their butts off on filmmaking. And I would argue that Marvel is the reason why cinemas are mostly still going. Like we, movie theaters are dying in the sense of we have things like Netflix, we have Hulu and Amazon. I am the biggest advocate for theatrical viewings you could imagine, and I understand that it's harder and harder to get people into a theater these days. And the fact that these Marvel movies are making billions of dollars, to me, it's I like it because it keeps the theatrical experience alive. It's to, I mean, to play theaters. devil's advocate for a second, I think you know part of the process is you know could a Martin Scorsese. Emer- you know, at the time in the '70s, we were we were blessed with the emergence of all of these incredible filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola and and, and um, George Lucas, even before he made Star Wars. Um, <laughs> could that happen today when theaters are kind of being strangled by Marvel movies? Like, could was would there be room for that yeah. many incredible filmmakers? Yes. When. 85% of screens are dedicated to movies that start with the studio, with start with the Marvel Studios logo. Here's my answer to that question. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, Joker. but that's Quentin Tarantino. Um, that's top, no, that's, that's jo- an established, uh, that's an Joker, established IP. Joker's not, Joker that's is an established, established IP. IP. Right, One way out. or the other. There's definitely less of it. I mean, yes. nowadays there's definitely I mean, you're always going to find examples of it, but it's it's the degree. Like, and, like you have to ask yourself how many filmmakers are, you know, for, for every Jordan Peele we get, how many filmmakers are we not getting because filmmakers are eyeing IPs and franchises and Marvel sure. films? Let like, me ask you this. If um, if we lived in a world where uh, I, the, the, the Marvels, the Star Wars, uh, the franchises didn't exist – would, would you rather them exist and keep the theater going? Or would you rather them not be there and have no theatrical experience? I think there will always be. I, I don't think that, that – I don't think that's, – that's implying that if Marvel movies didn't exist, we, there would be no movie theaters. Movie theaters no, existed for, for years without Marvel movies. No, my, argue, my argument is that Marvel franchises, these major things, are we're, or we're keeping theaters going. With the current state. Well, I mean, Does that I don't not think, make sense? I mean, think I, about Netflix. Well, but, but like theaters Hulu have been going for forever no, without Marvel movies. You're missing what I'm saying. No, no, Jake, Jake, my point is forever, you're talking about you're talking about a time before Netflix existed. 
and before Amazon existed, before Hulu existed, before streaming existed. I'm talking about right now, in this day and age, with those formats, theatrical experience needs these IPs, needs these massive Marvel films. I don't think these AMCs and Regals and theaters will be pumping all this money in to make the theatrical experience as good but as it is now it's without a, these massive films bringing butts to the seats. But it's a chicken or the opinion. egg thing because you mentioned Netflix and Hulu and, and all these streaming services. Filmmakers, great filmmakers are flocking to these right. streaming services because they can't get the movies they want into Right. The theaters, they can't get the movies because the theaters are choked and the studios are choked by Marvel movies. And I'm oh, not I knocking mean, Marvel movies. I'm oh, just I'm coming it. where you know I'm trying to get well, where they're coming well, from. Hold no, on. No, I want to bring up I, one point which Jake, comes to I, this. Wait, 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 wait. I, Jake, I really do I agree with you. I get that there's two sides happening here. I just feel like we because of films like Marvel the theatrical experience will live on longer and be better for it, in my opinion. I'm not saying that every theater, like an Uncut Gems, which is a masterpiece, is not going to make enough money to keep theaters going. Neither is a a film like Marriage Story. Neither is a film like, I mean, some of the best movies of this year, even Dr. Sleep, movies I I haven't seen Dr. Sleep yet, but Dr. Sleep is not going to make a billion dollars. But in my opinion, you have to have these gigantic films to keep this theatrical experience going. Also, filmmakers like Tarantino or Nolan, people who actually care about the theatrical experience, making films on film, projecting them on film, 70 millimeter IMAX, 35 millimeter. Like we are dealing with filmmakers who are actively trying to keep that theater experience going. And I think that we need these bigger films to pump money into the theaters to make the theatrical experience as good as it can be. In yeah, my I think I think both of those points are correct. And the one thing that I would throw back at the Scorsese's and Coppola's of the world that I can't that they can't refute necessarily is that at most Marvel releases three movies a year. Some years they release yeah. two. Right. You know? So what is this? What is this overwhelming amount of Marvel movies that, that, that they can't handle? That's you know? a staggering statistic. I mean, you you would think that they have three more, movies. right? Yes, yeah. of course. Now, do they dominate a lot of the headlines because yeah. everyone gets excited about the casting or the direction they're going to go? Yes, of course they do. But but they're they're talking about a movie that that you know three films that open a year. So at the end of the day. I want Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Chris Nolan, and Marvel, and all these things to exist. This is the same thing when it comes down to 35 versus digital. I will always be a film guy, but I also understand why digital has to exist. Sure. It is, it, it is, we, can, we can all coexist and live in the same world together. I think that for someone like Scorsese or Coppola to say the things they're saying it's a bit ignorant towards the idea of what's keeping the theatrical experience going. It's closed-minded. I, Just as any kind exactly. of filmmaker. As any other filmmaker, I'm surprised right. that they would dash any kind of filmmaking. Think about the Russo brothers, for example. How do they feel when someone like that... Like Scorsese, I am all... I want his movies forever. I, I am going to see Irishman in a movie theater. No question I'm going to go to a movie theater for that. But why can't we all exist together? And yeah. why can't we see the positives of what Marvel is bringing to the theatrical experience? That's all. That's all. I want uh, Endgame to beat Irishman at the Oscars <laughs> this year. That would be tremendous. All right. Anyway. Did you imagine? That, that actually, <laughs> Sean. Jake, what Sean, you? It's my number one of the year still. Sean, well, is, this, it has this, to be. It has to be your number one because it's your favorite movie of all time. What blows my mind time. is that you have a movie that came out this year that is your favorite movie of all time that right yes. now is not even in contention for my top ten. That's crazy. Sean, nuts. 
Sean, you know what's crazy? I could see Endgame almost getting the Argo effect. All this negative backlash towards Marvel based upon these stories. What well, if no, this, just keep what, in mind, what, a majority what, of the Academy are Scorsese, like Scorsese and Coppola and probably feel the exact same way as they do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I know. All right, anyway, uh, we promised at the beginning of this episode that we were able to share stories from some of the... Um, this week in particular was a week filled of unbelievable trips that we went on. And uh, I, I put something on Twitter that if you're uh, a fan of the name dropping episodes uh, on this show uh, of just places that we've been to or people that we've been able to meet uh, and interview, this one's going to be pretty special. We're going to start with uh, Jake, who was able to go out to Colorado for a doctor sleep trip. Um, if you're following his social media, it was a total blast. Uh, Jake, your video has not dropped yet, right? It has not. I mean, I my piece that I put together for the story, I actually I just finished uh, a first cut and sent it to the boys to kind of get some uh, some technical feedback. All right, so, so tell us why you uh, why you had to go to Colorado for a doctor sleep trip. Well, it's actually pretty cool. So Warner Brothers wanted to do something a little different other than a traditional doctor sleep junket, which they are going to be doing this weekend, which I think Kevin is attending. Uh, they wanted to kind of give us an experience. Now, if you don't know, the Overlook Hotel uh, where Jack Torrance and his family go to in The Shining is based on a hotel called the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. The reason that this uh, is so special is because after writing two books, Stephen King had writer's block and his funds were running low and he couldn't, everything he was sending to his publishers was getting rejected. So they took a teacher's job in Boulder, Colorado. And one weekend, his wife, Tabitha, just suggested, you know what? Let's just go up into the mountains. Let's, let's clear your head and maybe you'll find some inspiration. They land at a hotel called the Stanley Hotel. And the people at the front desk say, dude, we're closing for the winter tomorrow. Like, there's no one here. Like, what, what do you want to do? Kevin, yes. Can I ask you a stupid question, Jake? Yes. The idea of it being the Stanley Hotel and then Stanley Kubert directing the movie. Total coincidence. Okay. Total, total That's coincidence. so yeah. weird. Total coincidence. So okay. they say, look, dude, we have... Uh, all the rooms are not prepared for guests. We only have one that hasn't been turned over for the winter. You can have that, but you can only have it for the one night because we close up tomorrow. So they gave him room 217. So they're the only ones in the hotel. At a certain point, his wife, Tabitha, goes to bed, and he is roaming the halls. And you know, at this point, he's really battling alcoholism. He's, he's, had a, he's had a really hard time with that. He has a three-year-old son who he wants to try to be better for. He finds himself at the bar, and there's a bartender named Lloyd. Now, if you've hmm. seen The Shining, you know uh, what that means. Stephen King puts a $20 bill on the bar and says, how much whiskey will that get you? And Lloyd said, your money's no good here. <laughs> now, in The Shining, there's Crazy. a certain reason why he says it, but in real life, the reason he said that was he'd already done the taxes for the bar for the season, and he didn't want to redo the whole tax, for all the taxes, for $20 worth of whiskey. So they end up trading ghost stories over $20 worth of whiskey, and Stephen King drunkenly stumbles his way back to room 217, where he sees a wound up fire hose on the wall. And kind of, he just strikes him as weird. He looks at it, it just doesn't seem right. He stumbles his way into room 217 and has a night of basically a sleepless night because he has such horrible nightmares of this fire hose chasing his son down the hallway, coiling around his son and devouring his son alive. He wakes up in a cold sweat, he lights a cigarette, goes to sleep nice by the window, yeah, and starts to write. The Shining. Now, oh if you God. know The Shining, that, that, that image might not be familiar with you if you only know 
uh, the movie, but that's something that happens in the book, the fire hose chasing Danny. And there are also a lot of elements in the book that uh, aren't in the movie, like the, the, the hedge animals coming to life and stuff like that. But that's, that's where he got his inspiration for The Shining, which was the that's third awesome. book that he wrote. Now, it's not the, the hotel from the movie. The hotel from the movie, the exterior was the Timberline Lodge in, uh, in Oregon, and the interior right. were, were a soundstage in London. But for all intents and purposes, and this is something that uh, Mike Flanagan, Mike Flanagan said, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the director of Dr. Sleep said to me, the Stanley Hotel is the true Overlook Hotel because he that's used the, the word ho- yeah. definitive too. Definitive, definitive. exactly. Yeah. Because that's the hotel that Stephen King imagined when he wrote it. And in fact, there is a six hour miniseries that ABC produced in the late 90s. It's called Stephen King's The Shining, and it's a much oh, more wow. faithful adaptation to the huh. book. If you really like really? the book, it's it's that. Like the hedge I didn't animals. Know they did that. Yeah, the yeah. the 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 uh the fire Wait, is hose. It, is it- is it a documentary or is it like an no, actual? No, it's, it's like, actual. Like like, yeah. like, like, the sta- like the stand. Yes, someone else is, plays Jack Torrance. Someone else oh. plays Danny, and it that was shot at the Stanley. I didn't know that. Also wow. at cool. the Stanley, it was the hotel from Dumb and Dumber, which is a fun little and and, and <laughs> hanging in the bar, hanging in the bar is the we uh the moon landing newspaper, and I walked in and I looked at it and I go, no way. And I kind of like looked around thinking someone would know what I was doing. And then I just walked away and went, we landed on the moon. See, I, w- I would have gone to that hotel and done a whole story on Dumb and Dumber. And the stairs where they like <laughs> race up the stairs, you know. Dude, is the toilet uh, there? Is the, yeah, uh, the toilet. I has to. Well, no, that was her home, right? Did Stephen King use the toilet? Oh, that is her home. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. So, so, so anyway, so I ended up going there for kind of a, an experience of what it means to, uh, you know, to just to have that, that hotel and kind of see you know if it inspired us to do anything so my piece that i'm going to be airing on fox in chicago is less of a junket piece and more of a behind the scenes look at the hotel that inspired not just him to write a book not just stanley you know which then turned stanley kubrick and you know to turn the shining uh film but then a whole generation of filmmakers because like mike flanagan told me my career came from watching Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which came from Stephen King's The Shining, which came from the Stanley Hotel. So there's an endless number of creative artists who can trace their roots back to this little hotel in this little town in Colorado. And that's where did I was it, this past week. Did it feel haunted? I, okay, here's it. I don't really buy into the paranormal. It's not something that I really subscribe to. That being said, I will tell you a brief story and then we'll pass it on. We went on a ghost tour. And uh, they were taking us around, and the place just is full. I mean, even long before, I mean, it was built in 1909, long before Stephen King showed up in 1974, there were paranormal stories surrounding that place. Uh, So they took us into this basement, and they said all the ghosts that are in this hotel have some sort of connection to the hotel. They were either, they were a former chef or they were a guest that, that loved the place so much, or it was a housekeeper that worked till there till she was 102. They all have a connection except one named Lucy. And they say there is this room in the basement that Lucy lives in, and no one knows who she is. No one knows what her connection to the hotel is. It's my mom. It's it's <laughs> Kevin's mom. And so, you know, they're taking us around, and, you know, it's fun. I like ghost tours. I like the stories. I think it's a lot of fun. I just don't buy into it. And this was posted on my Instagram story, and I still have the video. Where they, were, they said, okay, you guys go into the room. And I think I was third in line. There was about eight of us, and I was third in line behind two other reporters. And as we're walking into the room... I make a smart ass remark. Guy, oh, is this is this is this where Lucy lives? Is this you know, all right, come on, is this where Lucy lives, guys? And the door shut behind me. Oh. The door sh- I I did not I swear I swear on my life. Uh, I I'm sure me being sort of the the more scientific rational person, 
I'm sure there was something to do with the building or one thing or the other. All I know is no one said anything as they were walking in. I made a smart ass <laughs> remark about whether or not Lucy actually was in that room. And then the door shut behind me without That's anybody touching it. So that cool. is the story I will, I will put out there. Did you let out a Dr. Peep when that happened? <laughs> See, I, you know, I, I, love, I love that Sean is so all in on this. I, I, and on that note, we get the wrap. I do have a question uh, Jake, for Jake. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I have a question for Jake. Um, uh, uh, I know, and this is something that I didn't know about until maybe a couple years ago about the idea of Stephen King not loving uh, Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, and obviously that was kind of like drilled into me a little bit more in Ready Player One. Um, and uh, The Shining to me to this day is the scariest movie I've ever experienced in my life. Even watching the clips in Jake's piece of just of, of watching Jack uh, take that uh, that axe to the door is just, you know, it's it's horrifying. It's terrifying. Um, my question to you, though, is do you get a sense from someone like Mike Flanagan that that Kubrick's movie was not done well enough to Stephen King's standards? Like, is, is that like, do you think Mike Flanagan loves The Shining or did, I do. Did, th- did, I do did, think Mike Flanagan loves The Shining. I th- it is possible to like Kubrick's Shining and Stephen King's Shining, but though they are different. But they're, they're, the main reason Stephen King hates The Shining is because Jack is never redeemed. Jack doesn't get the redemption. There's a moment in the in, at the end of the novel where Jack breaks loose of control of the Overlook and tells Danny, "Run." And oh, he cool. has that moment of redemption where he Why gets to be a good it? father. Cooper like did that. his own thing, and and then at, it's a very haunting image in the book where Jack takes a mallet. It's not a it's not an axe, a mallet, and I think he Stephen King describes it as a macabre dance. He starts smashing his face in with the mallet, almost trying to like just break get, get him, it out like, of get him. It, you know, as he's like going down the hallway, smash, smashing his face in with the mallet. But it's a moment where he is trying to battle, just like someone's trying to battle alcoholism. My story, uh, which if people have followed on social, you'll have an idea where I got to go earlier this week, was something that is unexpected because we can almost anticipate interviews are going to come down the pipe due to movies. Um, like Jake knew Dr. Sleep was coming. We'd been hearing about this potential uh, visit out to the Stanley. Uh, Kevin knows that a Terminator movie is happening. So while he might not believe the fact that Arnold and Linda are going to be in a room, uh, he can potentially look forward to the fact that he's going to be there. Uh, I did not expect to be uh, invited to Bruce Springsteen's house in New Jersey uh, for a sit-down interview with him. And Wait, this say was, that one more time. Uh, <laughs> I did not. Yeah, expect I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed that. Could you could you say that one more time? <laughs> to be invited. Uh, let me turn my my volume up. What would you say? Bruce Springsteen's house in oh. New Jersey <laughs> to speak to him uh, for his new documentary, Western Stars. Now, Western Stars is a documentary, a concert film, basically uh, that Bruce co-directs. And he told us uh, in the interview that, you know, it's a generous credit. He said, uh, you know, he helped him sort of conceive a lot of the stuff that takes place in between the songs. He said he, he didn't get anywhere near a camera or do anything really filmmaker wise, but he, he really helped put together this project. Um, and they brought it to the Toronto International Film Festival. But uh, that's where it had its world premiere. And they were it was really funny. Like this year, I, and I wrote this in a piece that I put up on Cinema Blend. It feels like the universe has been just trying really hard to get me to meet Bruce Springsteen. And I, it was never able to work until it finally worked out really, really well, which was um, over the summer. They had a New Jersey premiere for the uh, film Blinded by the Light, Gorinda Chata's film. And I was invited to go up to that. And they were saying uh, to on the way to that, because I'm a huge Bruce fan. I, I grew up, you know, worshiping Bruce's music. And uh, and so I was really excited to see Blinded by the Light when it came out. 
but I wasn't able to go up to that for the timing of it. And I remember I that really saying, bothered you. I, I texted Jake when, when I had to pass on it. And I said, dude, that means he's going to be there. And not only is he going to be there, like, then they were like, and then the after party is going to be at the Stone Pony, which is a very important uh, club in New Jersey where Bruce got his start. And once they said it was going to be at the Stone Pony, I said, oh, that means that there's, he's going to get up and play. I just know he's going to get up and play. But I still couldn't go, and I held off, and sure enough, I tracked the entire evening uh, via social media, and then, of course, Bruce did get up and play. Now, he didn't play any of his own songs. He played a bunch of covers, and so I didn't feel too bad about that. Um, then, when we were in Toronto, they said, oh, Western Stars is going to be here, and we're putting together a luncheon with for a couple of press. Can you be there? But it was after, much later in the festival, when I was already going to be going home. And they even said to me, they were like, can you fly back to Toronto to be there for this event? And I said, no, I, I can't go back after just coming right back. So I had to miss him a second time. This third time, the, I finally had to make it happen. And it was a group of five of us who were handpicked to go um, to Bruce's personal, his private studio and get uh, 30 minutes with him to sit down and just talk about his music and his movie and life in general and just crazy stuff that that I still can't actually to me literally thinking it back onto the onto the event it feels like a dream that I had or it actually feels like the only way to describe it is that it happened to somebody else and I watched it happen but I can't quite process that it was me who was sitting there because the weirdest part of it is like when you're asking Springsteen a question and he's looking at you and paying attention and then he starts answering you specifically your brain says to you like Holy shit, that's Bruce Springsteen. And you know, too, yeah. I, I listened to that audio, and he's he's not there. It doesn't sound, you know, because we've done enough of these to know when someone is, doesn't matter what you're asking, they're delivering the message of, go see my product. Oh, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was listening to you, and he was answering your questions. It, like, it sounded like you were just sitting down with him, like, shooting the shit. It, yep. it didn't sound like there was a purpose for the conversation to be happening that's, other than people uh, dude, just that's a talking great point. Cause you know how often we get that where someone starts giving you an answer and you just know it's a rehearsed answer or a talking point or some such like, uh, so that's, that's really funny that you say that because Josh Horowitz from MTV was one of the people who did it with us. It was all, it was Kate Erblin from IndieWire. It was Mike Ryan from Uproxx, Eric Davis uh, from Fandango, and then Josh Horowitz from MTV were the other ones who were there. They're all diehard Bruce fans too. It's really funny that you say that, Jake, because I was watching Josh Horowitz's uh, stuff with the Zombieland 2 cast, and he asked a, a good question. I forget what it was, um, but Jesse Eisenberg gave an answer that as soon as he started giving it, I was like, oh, that's just like, you could tell that's such a rehearsed answer. And as soon as he finished it, Emma Stone said, did you have media training? And I was like, oh, that's oh, really funny. Wow. <laughs> because wow. even she knows it was a BS answer. But you just know that. You just hear those answers when they're not authentic. But everything in Bruce's interview for that 30 minutes was just a great, authentic, honest conversation, just reactions to the things that we brought up. And the best thing about it was we all treated it when we were going out there of we're not trying to get huge scoops. We're not trying to break stories. Let's just all experience this as, wow, we're here. Uh, we're all movie journalists and we never expected to ever be here. And let's just enjoy being with Bruce. And, and that, I think, led to it being uh, one of the most unforgettable experiences of my career. You know, Sean, Sean, one of the things I found that I loved about this particular story was when we had uh, Blinded by the Light director on, we were talking about um, Grinder Chodhop. We were talking about the idea of Bruce Springsteen and how much of an effect it had on her and also you. And that's when I realized how much of a Bruce Springsteen fan you were, which kind of made me even more excited 
that you were going there. Um, visually, though, because I'm a guitar player, you saw you said you saw a bunch of guitars sitting around there. Like, <laughs> oh I, 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 want, I want to know what the visual was like in that room. Like, what Dude. did it look like? Okay, so his is his. It's essentially a barn, um, but it's but <laughs> it's a it's it's like it's like seven barns put together in a long stream. And when I say barn, I really mean like the most pristine structure <laughs> that you've ever seen in your life. It's like, it's wood. It's all wood. Um, and once you step into it, it's completely soundproofed. And Kevin, like I'm going to tell you something. star barn. Oh, dude. It's like, it's the most gorgeous thing. And he's been recording there since 2006. This is his recording studio. Uh, I saw Max Weinberg's drum kit. Oh I saw, my gosh. Dude. Really? Is, and, and then beyond that is um, singing booths. There's like three singing booths that he can go into and track um, vocals if he wants to. But Kevin, there has to be 45 guitars. Like, just, like were they hanging up or were they just sitting on the, where, where were they doing? Some hanging, floor racks, uh, everything. <laughs> Acoustics, electrics. Uh, there's there's awesome. about a dozen different types of organs. There's uh, like pianos, organs, glockenspiels, bass guitars. But dude, here's the thing. Everything in that studio, you'll love this. Everything is mic'd and turned on 24 hours a day. And he has technicians, oh, engineers wow. in the studio around the clock. They, they just work shifts because they never know when he's going to want to come in, when he's been inspired <laughs> by something. And they have to be ready to throw on uh, Pro Tools and start recording. That's he does not, unbelievable. He doesn't want to wait. He wants to walk into the so studio. So he gets inspired. Pick, yes. He wants to wow. walk in, pick up whatever he wants and start going. And they have to be ready to record it because they never know when he's going to come. He can come 24 hours a day. He can come night and day. I told Michelle that and Michelle goes, ah, that sounds a little diva-ish. And I was like, yeah, but you think it's working for him? I think probably yeah. that process is working pretty well for Bruce. So he should be able to do whatever he wants to do. I would also imagine those people who are wait working there around the clock probably are all in on it. They probably oh, love yeah. it. It's a cool oh, God, concept. Love it. I I don't, what a cool it's like it's like it's like Jake's story about Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King obviously had the idea to he, he could go he can go to a pad of paper and start writing or typing. Right. That's yeah. easy for him. Yeah. But if a songwriter comes up with something immediately and they want to record it, what do you do? You have so to then have he says, something. They said um, a, a new song. Bruce could come in with a new song and they could have it to track um, on all the different tracks as quickly as if it's a five minute song. He'll do every instrument for five minutes and like he'll do the pianos, he'll do the drums, he'll do the rough and just put it all together. And then he'll just sit there and listen to it, play back. And then he can start tweaking wow. it. See, that's that, that's unbelievable to me. Like, but I, I, was, I was wondering what the visual was like for you, because it sounds like it's because aw- I heard in the interview, I listened to the whole audio about the size of the he made. I think he joked about the size of the screen in Toronto being the side of his barn side of his barn. Um, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, and I was trying to visualize what the barn looked like. And now that I'm glad you mentioned it, it was like this, like almost like a higher class barn. Because now now I'm envisioning like beautiful wood, like guitars. Oh. I, I can see it in my mind now. It's well, awesome. I'll do you one better. The Western Stars documentary and then we'll move on after this and then you can go to cinema blend if you want to read my piece too it's up there right now the western stars documentary um is filmed in the barn he filmed it in the oh, barn on cool. his property in new jersey when is it hit because, theaters uh friday uh december uh, october 25th it opens everywhere and essentially what he said was this is all new material that he wrote for himself solo he's not doing it with the e street band 
He doesn't plan on touring with it, so he wanted to give his fans an option to be able to uh, see these songs live. So he did the movie component. So it's him playing this album from start to finish with a symphony component, and they are incredible. He just hired a bunch of session musicians who learned the entire album, and they did it over the course of two days. They just played the album start to finish with a bunch of pros, and then he cuts in a lot of other footage, home video footage and stuff, to make the movie together. Um, But The Barn, the way he describes it is just so personal, and Bruce, he's like... We've owned this barn for, uh, it's a hundred year old barn. We've owned it for years. We host a, a million parties. We've had weddings. Uh, we've had, uh, baptisms. So the, the, every vibe in the barn, every spirit is something positive. It's something celebratory. And I just knew when I wanted to make this record, I wanted to be in the vibe of the barn. And I like, I got goosebumps just listening to him talk about like all the inspirations he pulled from this location on his property. I, 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 I loved it. I loved it. Sean's impressions are very underrated, by the way. You said, <laughs> that sounded a little bit like Bruce Springsteen, to be I was honest. trying to throw a little bit of Bruce in there, yes. I, I want to give Sean a quick uh, credit, by the way. Go to his interview, because he asks a great question, because people think about Bruce Springsteen, and you think about E Street Band, uh, and those are like two very synonymous things, and the 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 movie and music in the film is not E Street Band music. No. It's just Bruce. And mm-hmm. uh, it was interesting to hear Bruce Springsteen, little tease, just go there and read it about why he didn't use E Street um, in this. And I learned a lot from the interview because I didn't realize that Bruce Springsteen didn't tour on the Nebraska album. I mean, there was a lot of things in there as somebody who's a casual fan that I learned about. So it was a really cool, it was cool to follow it. Well, not to be outdone. Kevin also got to go to some pretty amazing places, and one this specifically. This is nuts, and all of these happened at the same <laughs> in the time. Of a week, in the course of a week, we were all able to do these. We're not trying to show off, I swear to God. Uh, Kevin went on an amazing vacation. I don't know how much of it you want to share, but the one story I want yeah. you to tell is the Kill Bill restaurant. Yeah, I'll, I'll just keep it super quick. My wife and I went on our wedding anniversary. We went to, we planned it out. I've always wanted to go to Japan because of Kill Bill. When I, when I saw Kill Bill at a certain time in my life, I kind of almost fell in love with Japanese culture. And I took Japanese in college because of it. I bought the Japanese uh, DVD of the film so I could watch the House of Blue Leaves scene in full color, all these things. Um, So Japan was always actually on my bucket list. I actually almost went there and taught English uh, for a year. Uh, uh, in oh, college, no but, it would, but it would have delayed my graduation. Um, cool. But I always wanted to go there. Anyway, so we went. Went to Shanghai, Okinawa, Nagasaki. Uh, Shanghai specifically we went to because of the movie Her, because Spike Jones shot all the exteriors of futuristic L.A. in Shanghai. That when, when Joaquin and Phoenix is walking around L.A. in the future, it's actually Shanghai to it looks like futuristic. Anyways, so we get to Japan. We land. My wife goes, or Lauren goes, we got to uh, go to dinner tonight. And I was like, where are we going? She goes, it's a surprise. I won't tell you where we're going. I was like, okay, but we just landed at like eight o'clock. Do you want to just stay in? She goes, no, we, it's a surprise. We, we need to go. And she was freaking out. She was emailing whoever she was emailing to find out the timing of it to make sure we got there on time. So we pull up to this building and I, I, I have no clue. I didn't know anything about this place. It was called Gompachi. And essentially when you, uh, when you walked in, Lauren stood back and said, I want you to walk in first. And it was, it was instantaneous that I knew what it was. It was the it was the place that Tarantino went to to eat that inspired the way the House of Blue Leaves scene uh, looks in, uh, in Kill Bill. So when you walk in, it's the exact design. It's like it's like it's the there's like you know there's an upstairs area. It looks exactly like the House of Blue Leaves on a miniature scale. Uh, um, that's amazing. I, I was I was envisioning the crazy 88s running in. I was see, I was thinking of the band. Your pictures were great when you when you yeah. were running up the. 
the stairs. Yeah. And so you walk in. I mean, from my mind, I mean, thank, thankfully, to Lauren's uh, uh, surprise, I knew it in, instantaneously. There was nothing that indicated it more than the upper structure of the of the of the restaurant. Sure. Then, I can tell right in your photos immediately. Yeah. But then when you walk in, there's a there's a there's a case that has like it's dedicated to Quentin Tarantino. He's 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 with the owner. There's like images of uh of of what the movie looked like. There were it was so crazy. So and then they took us upstairs to the garden that inspired the scene when she fights Lucy Liu's character at the end of Kill Bill uh, Kill Bill Volume one, unfortunately, it's Kill Bill. I'm just referring to it from a factual standpoint. Um, Thank you. But but to be honest, it was a, it was a big surprise. Um, that as well. We, we were in Japan, so there's a lot of things we wanted to do movie wise. We went to the Park Hyatt, uh, which is where uh, Lost in Translation was filmed. We wanted to stay there, but it was it was absurdly expensive. <laughs> Japan's it, it's so expensive at it, it was unreal. But this uh, hotel was was so crazy over the top that Lauren said, well, stay somewhere else, but I want to take you here. So we went to the uh, New York bar, which is the scene where he's sitting there, you know, drinking probably a Suntory time, whatever it was. And Scarlett Johansson, who's, you know, not having a great time because her husband's off shooting photography and sleeping with other women, I think. Um, and so essentially we sat there and I got to do the Suntory time recreation. Then we went to the real, this was the craziest thing. The actual karaoke room where they shot the karaoke scene. Not only the real place, we went to the room 601 where they shot it. That's so awesome. we were remember, we're Americans in Tokyo walking around. There's a language barrier. We're trying to tell the cab driver where to go. They take us to the wrong karaoke con, which is the name of the place where they shot it. I walk in and I go up to the guy, I'm like, sir. Uh, I go, lost in translation? And he goes, he didn't know idea what I was talking about, ironically, because I'm saying lost in translation. <laughs> ah, that's and, funny. And so I, I, I pull up a poster of lost in translation, and he goes, oh, oh, oh. And then I see the guys kind of have this moment where they're like, they they want my money, and they don't yeah, want me yeah. to leave. Yeah. And I'm and I'm and I'm like, are they gonna just like lie that this is the right spot? Like, just like, tell the kid it's over there. <laughs> so I hear them. I, I hear them talking uh, to amongst themselves, the guys who run the uh, the place. And I, I at one point, the guy comes over to me. He goes, "Well, it it looks like the scene from the movie." I'm like, "No, no, no! I want the real place." Yeah, he goes, yeah. oh, "Oh, okay." The guy, people in Japan, by the way, are the nicest people. This guy. And this is this happened a lot throughout the trip. At one point, Laura and I were lost, and there was this woman walking around with her kid, and we she we asked her where the, where to go for a certain direction. She said that way. Five minutes later, we were lost. She ran back to us and wow. said, "No, no, no, it's this way." Right. So this guy at the karaoke con literally takes us and walks us to the other karaoke con <laughs> to, to get to the real place. And this nice. was the weirdest part about it. We walk in, and I go up to the guy. I'm like, I want the Lost in Translation room. He goes, 601? I'm like, yes. He goes, well, it's in a different building. I'm like, oh, my God. So like, so, he, so they had to walk us to another building, to a separate area. We go in. It's literally the exact same room. The walls look the same except for the zebra prints gone. The lines are still all there. And then you, we proceeded to do karaoke for an hour. By the way, the karaoke there is so interesting. It's all remixed random versions of the songs like we did Slipknot One Direction we did Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga uh, Shallow <laughs> and we're in this room and it's, it's where they filmed it it was so wild so that's it was awesome. so anyways that's that was what I was doing for the past week but um, it was surreal if you ever get a chance to go to Japan go to Tokyo that Kill Bill restaurant is 
it's like walking into a Tarantino dream. The guy literally Which is walking into there. your dream. Yeah, I mean, it was wild. <laughs> and the food was amazing, too. But it was, yeah, that was pretty cool, so... Uh, Jakey, you were gonna say that? You're gonna, were you gonna? Oh no! I, I just, I just love that. Like Kevin gives this incredible story about where he's been over the last couple of days, and he goes, "So that's what I was doing." <laughs> no, I, but I mean, compared compared to what you guys were doing from uh, no, a, from there, a, there's, from a, there's a, there's I mean, one moment where we were all like our texter, we were all texting each other because I think at, that, at one point, even I'm gonna give Gabe a shout out. He was doing something with Ryan Johnson, and yeah, then, and then. Which oh, he yeah, won't the, speak about. It. Yeah, he was doing photo. something with Brian Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was gearing up to go to the Shining Hotel. Sean was gearing up to interview Bruce. Uh, Kevin was was in Tokyo, and there was just sort of this moment where it's just like, what, what, you know? Because we all have moments where usually two or three of us are doing something at one time, but for all four of us to be just in different places and such different, almost things right, that were so things. niche to us. Right, yeah, things right, that are right. all like almost like written for. Well, here's a thing that Jake would like, and here's a thing Sean would like. Here's <laughs> yeah, a thing yes. Kevin would like. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, prop, and prop, props to Gabe, by the way. When you, I haven't seen the video yet, but he sent us some photos of the Ryan Johnson shoot, and it's it's like epically lit. Like it's a really cool sequence. Like they're in the front of a theater. It looks like the projector light is on, and they're just sitting there with the seats behind it, and it, yep. it looks awesome. I mean, I, I mean, people who on behalf of uh, Knives Out, we'll be able to it, share that for and Knives Out. Awesome. I can't wait for people to see it. I know uh, uh, Sean and Gabe saw it at Toronto. It's an excellent, excellent movie. It's a great theater experience, too. Well, speaking of theater experiences, let's go really quickly through this week's in movies, uh, the the segment of the show where we mention films that we haven't seen yet, uh, starting with Countdown. Anyone seen Countdown? Nothing. This is my most embarrassing part of the week, by the way. Like, <laughs> I mean, we, we really I, do we are, do this. We are living. film critics, no, actually, and we my, don't. Like, it, favorite, but people, we work segment. backwards, though. We work three weeks <laughs> ahead, though. That's the Usually, difference. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the current war, uh, the director's cut of the current war. No, which I'm guessing they're saying director's cut because it actually <laughs> premiered at the Toronto Film Festival like two years two ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago, yes. And, and apparently uh, did not that do cut well. was rushed, right? The par- yes. uh, that's what I read. That The Toronto cut was rushed and so this cut's apparently more um more of what the filmmaker wanted to do hence correct the i think cut. they even went back and did reshoots the cast is actually really impressive it's benedict Huge. cumberbatch michael shannon tom holland um it's got a he's got a great cast it's edison versus um uh what's the other name i'm trying to think of wait no? bad boys two star michael shannon isn't that yes. movie bad boys oh, tesla tesla thank you gabe nice job yes bad boys two star michael michael shannon um <laughs> black and blue anyone seen black and blue Black no, but I want to. No, no I, the, the junket Tyrese. for that conflicted with uh, the Shawnee experience. Do you know, I got a four-year consideration email for Black and Blue today. I didn't realize this was an awards contender. Looks this. good. All right, man. Well, we haven't seen it yet. However, we uh, have well, seen... I, I, got, I got some behind-the-scenes stuff to tell you about that. All right. Oh, tell us off the I know what Jake's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean, Kevin knows what I'm talking about. This film, um, and we talked about it already, but we want to remind everybody that Craig Brewer's Dolomite is my name... Uh, is finally hitting Netflix on the 25th of October. I'm pretty sure it's making all of our top tens. So um, good. It's fantastic. So good. And it, not only so is inspiring. it the celebration of, you know, the return of Eddie Murphy, and it is, it's a great return to form for Eddie Murphy. It's just a really good example of 
let's get a group together and make a movie. Like we've seen a couple of those films before. And obviously this is a story of uh, Rudy Ray Moore, who made a couple of films, really low budget films, but very passionate films that he just wanted to see the types of things that he loved uh, in movies. He sort of tapped into the black exploitation era of that time. And he made a film called Dolomite based on a character that he'd invented called Dolomite. And it's just a really funny look at um, how some people got together to to make a movie that, you know, that he believed in. I don't know if everybody who was sort of making it uh, believed in it as much as he did until they sort of saw his passion for it. Craig Brewer, you know, it's funny, like, I'm really glad Craig Brewer did this because it's Same. It, it's very much like Hustle and Flow, you know, yes. in that Terrence Howard's character uh, had such a belief in his uh, rap career at that point. He was going to give up everything in order to get to it. That's what Eddie Murphy is, is like in Dolomite. And so you can start seeing it in uh, on Netflix on October 25th. Cannot recommend it enough. Love Hustle and Flow, by the way. If you haven't seen that or Black Snake Moan, he's a really talented filmmaker. And I'm glad. I think he's doing the sequel to Coming to America, which makes me even more excited mm-hmm. after what he did on Dolomite. Dolomite's my favorite Eddie Murphy performance since Study Professor. So I read something it. really interesting. I know we don't want to spend too much time on this, but I read something really interesting when it comes to the Oscar consideration for Dolomite. The line I read was, he's not guaranteed to get a nomination, but if he be- if, but if he gets a nomination, he instantly becomes someone to consider for winning. Because if he gets into the race, then people stop and go, we really should give him an Oscar. Yeah. And, so, and the, this so the year, hardest thing for him will be getting a nomination, but the second he gets that nomination, he's someone that we should look at to potentially win. Wow. I will say this, Dolomite came out of nowhere for me. Um, that, and that and that concerns me, and I'll tell you why. Like I, I I think we were all blown away by how much we loved Dolomite, and I don't think that I had any idea how good it was going to be. Um, and I don't feel like there's a sense out there right now to put to the public of how great this film truly is. It's it, it, there's so many movies coming out, especially in this day and this time of the year that I hope it doesn't get buried. It's so well done. Well, I look forward to us getting Dolomite coffee table books and pillows from our good friends at Netflix as the award season rolls on. Uh, this that, that joke Glenn being game. that for Roma last year, we got 18 <laughs> different coffee table books. We got pillows. We got, you know. You know what I do have is a, I'm staring at it right now, a signed uh, poster in a beautiful frame uh, from Alfonso Cuaron and yeah. Netflix uh, friends. If you happen to be listening to this week's episode of uh, Real Blend, a an Irishman poster with some signatures on it would be Chef's Kiss. Mm-hmm. Just, <laughs> just, just, <laughs> would be ideal. All right, the blend game. Uh, we have said we are playing hashtag John Carpenter Blend uh, this week uh, for no apparent reason. Um, just I mean, to celebrate I mean, the. I mean, one of his fam- most of famous Carpenter. movies is Halloween, and Halloween yeah, is next oh, week. Thank you, thank you, Jake, for bringing it all full circle and home for us to play the blend game. I've been told I get to go first. Uh, I am going to celebrate. So if you do John Carpenter, in my opinion, you should also do Kurt Russell. Uh, Those two go hand in hand, almost as if you were doing uh, Scorsese and De Niro or, um, hmm, what's another really good director actor Scorsese, DiCaprio. um, There's a a zillion of them. See, I don't like the Scorsese, DiCaprio. I like Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, anyway, Carpenter. Yeah, that, oh, that's a, that's, that's one I probably, though my Tim Burton pick was not a Johnny Depp movie. Then it was wrong. Uh, You're wrong. I am going with Big Trouble in Little China. Um, (laughs) Big Trouble in Little China is my favorite uh, John Carpenter film. Might not be his best, but, I love, obviously, I've talked at length about the types of uh, action heroes that I like uh, on this podcast. Charismatic, 
uh, in over their head. Uh, don't want to admit that they are overmatched, uh, sarcastic, yeah, quippy type heroes. And that's exactly what Kurt Russell gives you in that film. I like Jack Burton uh, more than I like Snake Plissken. Um, and I, that movie to me, by the time I saw it when I was younger, uh, I'd seen a lot of traditionally uh, conventional films, uh, a lot of family films probably at that point. And I'm pretty sure, I'd have to go back and look, I'm pretty sure uh, no, Big Trouble in Little China was the first John Carpenter film I saw. And I just happened to see it on HBO. And it was just the weirdest. It was one of those movies that finally said to me, like, movies don't have to follow a template. They can actually be anything you want them to be. And then I was like, and, and maybe I saw like Wonka or something like that. And Wonka was probably pretty out there for a standard film. But I was like, what the hell is this movie? Like the, the villains were so strange and the powers that they brought were weird. And the movie didn't try overly hard to explain its mythology. And it just, it threw this blue collar guy into the middle of it. And he was sort of the gateway for the audience. because Is just he one of the best blue collar guys Oh yeah, he's I mean, for be. such like a like good-looking movie star, he yeah. so well represents us. He's so yeah. good at that. I don't know who else you'd pick. I mean, Harrison Ford in some yeah. roles, Denzel early on. Uh, I think yeah. I think I think Denzel represents. I'd the, give the it average Kurt man. Russell over that. I mean, I'd give it to Kurt Russell over that. Yeah. Um. So so I'm going with Big Trouble in Little China. Great uh, again. Pick. Great pick. Probably not his best, but absolutely. Well, that's favorite. why favorite is better. Yeah. Um. Kevin, you're up. Yeah, I mean, here th- this is this is an interesting thing because if I were to uh, give my pick for Carpenter for his best movie, it would be The Thing. But I can't not go with Halloween, and I know that's such a, I know it's cliche, and I actually feel cringy picking it. But huh. I want I want to give, I feel cringy picking it because it's so obvious. That's the reason why I feel cringy picking it. Um, the reason why I picked it is because it has my it has single handedly my second favorite piece of movie trivia ever uh which is that michael myers's mask is a is a captain kirk mask and I, I i always just that just every time i watch the movie now it just blows my mind um but a lot of things about that film do you remember how much it cost yeah it was i, I asked um wasn't it like that. 399 it was or something nothing like that? yeah it and was then dirt they, cheap i did i i remember doing the halloween junket uh last year and jason bloom i guess didn't know that story so i bring out the mask in front of him and Carpenter and it was cool because I was worried that Carpenter would be like oh come on this again but because Bloom didn't know the story it ended up being this great bit where like Carpenter explained it to him and then like pulled the mask up and showed it and like it was cool anyways um but that film is a great example of necessity as the mother of invention in the sense of the shots in that movie are Brilliant. The POV shots, um, specifically the opening shot, the continuous tracking shot, which I, uh, Carpenter said there is a stitch in there or an edit in there, but it's you know can't really find. It. It's hard to find. Um, but I, I, I just find that movie to be so brilliantly executed. The fact that it went, well, the time of year of when it was shot, of when uh, and then when it takes place, it wasn't even shot in the fall, right? They had to like put leaves down, from what I understand. Um, the idea of the score being done by John Carpenter. Uh, it has one of the most iconic scores in the history of cinema. And I, I just find it to be a perfect film from a, from a horror standpoint, from, but also a performance standpoint. Uh, it is genuinely terrifying with very minimal deaths compared to what we're seeing today. That's why I didn't really particularly love the new Halloween film because they're, they, it, 
not not only do they they should have ended it because they should have bookended it, but it was it relied way too heavily on brutal violence. And I think the violence in the first Halloween is horrifying. I mean, all violence is horrifying, but it was done, in my opinion, to serve the story rather than shock the audience. And I think that the way the violence was done in the first Halloween uh, was was done out of storytelling, not because they wanted to shock in my opinion. I don't, um, I don't love that. The, I don't love that the new one is getting two sequels. I don't, no, I don't think that's no. necessary. I've said this a million times. You, you, you're calling the movie Halloween. You bookend it. Kill yeah. Michael Myers off. Don't yep. do. I mean, I, I get the I get the bit over the years. We don't think he's dead. He's not dead, whatever it was. But you have three generations of Strodes right there. Kill him. Give us that satisfaction it's of a that ending. Final ending too. Like you know, him getting out of that is going to be. You know what I mean, though. It's like, and then they, and they, tease, they tease you that he's not going to be. And then now we have a new one coming out. It's like, like I don't know. That bothered me really, really heavily. But anyways, so I went with Halloween. All right, Jake, you're up. I love the the rare weeks like this where all three of us choose three completely different films. Nice. It doesn't happen very often. I chose the thing. There you go. Which is uh, probably a top three maybe even top two horror movie for me first of all i'm a sucker for uh, a bunch of people in a in a room or in a cabin isolated in the middle of nowhere and then something happens i'm, I'm a big sucker for that that premise um and that sort of just this blend of horror but then also kind of a, 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 a you know a, a whodunit because you know you're trying to figure out who is who is the thing and that it's transferable and just the the pure joy I get watching uh, the the natural effects, the the the, the, the practical effects that, that he used. I mean, I it's just. I mean, I know that they tried to do the prequel a couple of years uh, ago that set it up. I mean, first of all, that's a that's a story idea. I never wanted to see. I love the yeah. idea of just the dog. Like, I don't want to know where that dog came from. I just right. want to see that. I just think that's such a brilliant way right. to to. I mean, because the story in my head of what happened was way better than having it explained to me sure. but the it's such a perfect cast i mean kurt russell is obviously killer but like he doesn't stand above and beyond of everyone else like he's equal to everyone uh the ending the because i i have always thought the ending never tells you which one of them it is right no no it's very open-ended and yeah. i i think carpenter has kind of refused to go it's almost like um David Chase trying to address the end of the Sopranos. He does. He's never going to give you the definitive answer on uh, Tony Soprano. It still so. blows right. my mind that the thing is a remake. By the way, that yeah, because that, because my right. initial viewing of that film was as if it was the thing original. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I didn't. I, and again, this, you know, it just speaks to me not knowing the history of that story. Well, so but, I guess that speaks to you know, I guess all reboots they uh, or remakes that have a reason to exist because sometimes they might make. Uh, a better version, right? Right. And that's kind of, you know, we had a lot of arguments about remakes on the show recently with Lion King. But I mean, like, I'm thankful the thing was remade because I don't yeah. know that I would have ever experienced that story. But And like even something like The Departed, which I was watching today is a remake. And that, that's crazy to me that that's a remake. Um, and like, I don't know that I'd ever would have seen that original film had it not been for Martin Scorsese's. Uh, I actually have never seen the original, um, whatever it's called. Um, is it called The Departed? No, I don't no, think so. no, no, no. The, the Internal um, Affairs. Yes, that's, right. yes, yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Also, so, I mean, back to the yeah. the thing is, I would argue. I'm curious about where you guys would rank it. The thing, <laughs> top five movie poster. Oh yeah, for sure. I actually was considering that when we just beautiful, did movie posters. Beautiful recently. poster. All right, audience picks uh, for John Carpenter, led uh, John Palmer, Paul Marsh, and many others went with Big Trouble in Little China. 
Dustin Stout, Declan Evans, and a few others also said Halloween. Rich Baird said The Thing. And then Michelle Wardlaw went off the board of the three of us and went with Christine, which is very much in the vibe of Stephen King, which we've been talking about a lot. If my father-in-law was on this show today, he would pick Christine. He like That's a movie he watches at his house every time I go over there. Him and uh, my wife, Lauren, obviously watch it. Oh, because he's a big car guy. So think about anything car-related, Christine's going to be like... It's really well done. It's really well done. (laughs) It is well done. It's really well done. Uh, All right. Again, thank you, everybody, for participating and playing along via social media, whether you were emailing us, again, at realblend.cinemablend.com. For next week, so we had a lot of conversations about um, we wanted to do something uh, Arnold-specific because Terminator Dark Fate is coming. And next week, we'll be able to tell you guys uh, the stories of the junket weekend uh, of the room of Linda and Arnold, if it happens. Um, So we're going to use, uh, specifically, we're going to play Arnold Schwarzenegger blend, but we're going to do hashtag Arnold blend because we don't want to make you guys have to spell Schwarzenegger. Uh, So just use hashtag Arnold blend. S-C-H-W-A-R-N-E-G-G-E-R. Uh, you might be right. You said it so fast, I didn't really know. Yes, sure. We'll yes. Let me know correct. retroactively. Hashtag Arnold Blend. Um, but as an added incentive, uh, the three of us are going to also give you our favorite Arnold one-liners. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from our movie. Uh, we can have a totally separate movie and then a one-liner from a different place. But we're going to give you our favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and our favorite one-liners. Did and we course, give this stipulation? Uh, oh, right, right, right. The um, stipulation. The rule is yeah. none of us can pick Terminator 2. Because Which it's I think is fun. I wouldn't obvious. mind yeah. doing that moving forward if there are obvious choices. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I mean, ter- if you yeah. listen to any of these episodes, you yeah. know that T2 is Kevin's favorite movie of all time. Right. So that would, re- you know, remove him essentially from right. the mystery of the movie. And now game. I'm excited about it because I, 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 now I'm Now going, I don't know what I'm going to pick. I know my pick. I don't either. I know my pick. I, I do. really don't know mine. You don't know yours? Fun to sort of think about. Jake, no. you don't know, you know yours? What? Boy, I, you know, I think mine's going to be Kevin's interview with him this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. it happens. If, if it, it happens. happens. Yes, yeah. all right. Uh, next week, in addition to Terminator stories, uh, the boys will have been able to see The Irishman and potentially do some interviews for that, too. Uh, so we'll be back with plenty more stories. Check uh, our Instagram the, for some photos. For the blenders. Yes, yeah, stay uh, tuned into the guys' social medias. And for that, um, you can go to at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV or at Sean underscore O'Connell. Of course, go to at Real Blend. Always do us a favor, drop us a review on iTunes. We'll read them at the top of the show. Uh, And we'll be back next week with, um, oh, who's our guest next week? Oh, Tim Miller. We're hopefully going to have Tim Miller, the director of Terminator Dark Fate. Yes, um, because they're going to, the boys are going to talk to him while they're out in Hollywood. So come back for that interview. Uh, We will be able to talk Dark Fate and The Irishman. And until next week... Den, <laughs> I did you said, mess it up? No, I almost. What? I was. I was gonna say tenant, just to throw you guys off, and then I Den- said den it. Den- like, den- just, <laughs> Dunkirk. <laughs> wow, you've changed. I'm rusty this week, man. We <laughs> really are. <laughs>